This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton and the Boston Consulting Group. Procurement has taken on greater strategic importance in multinational companies in recent years, and it will assume even greater significance in the years to come, according to Hal Serkin, Senior Partner and Managing Director at the Boston Consulting Group and Global Leader of BCG's Operations Practice. In this podcast, part of a series of interviews with BCG experts and Wharton faculty on the subject of procurement, Serkin explores the essential components of procurement in the context of global business and the ways in which companies from rapidly developing economies are challenging traditional multinationals. Hal, thanks for joining us today. A pleasure to be with you, Steve. Uh, We've spoken with several of your colleagues at BCG and a number of Wharton faculty members about procurement. Today we'd like to talk with you for a bit to see if you can just kind of help us put this topic in a broad perspective, uh, providing your views on the, on the, the issue of creating a global sourcing strategy. Um, as you know, companies have been sourcing from China and other low-cost locations for years now. Uh, what level of expertise and cost savings are you seeing? Well, you know, we've seen cost savings in the range of 20 to 40 percent, depending on what the product is. On the other hand, we've also seen examples where there were no cost savings when people tried it. You know, there's really a lot of advantages to going to low-cost countries to source, but it has to be done right. You know, I think the biggest mistake that companies make is that they they try to source things and forget it, and uh, you can't forget it. There's really three things you have to get right. You have to think about what the product is, and you've got to make sure you're sourcing the right part or the right product. And, uh, you know, that really means that uh, the, the company you're outsourcing it to uh, needs to have the technical capability to produce it well, the practical capability to execute it well, and that there needs to be a fundamental logic behind all of that that they're saving. So if you take a part that requires 50% labor, that makes a lot of sense to go to company, countries that have low costs for labor. But if it only has 10% labor content, then it really doesn't make a lot of sense to go there. So the first thing you have to get right is making sure you take the right part or the right product there. The second thing you have to do is make sure that you bring the right process. And, and, and that's really about a, a supply chain question and a quality question. From a supply chain perspective, you have to make sure that the costs don't eat up the savings. So if it's a very uh, difficult part to transport, that becomes an issue or if you have a more fashion good or a good with a lot of variable demand, sourcing it far away means that you'll have to hold a lot more inventory, which means you hold a lot more costs and run a lot more risk of obsolete products. So, you know, we've seen people try to offshore and outsource parts and, and products with 300% variation in demand, and when that happens, the value goes down. In addition to the right supply chain, you have to have a quality process in place. Now, we've seen a lot of examples recently where companies have uh, had problems uh, with the quality of the products that are coming in, and some products were even unsafe or, in other cases, unusable. And that really means that you have to invest the time to have your people there to make sure that the quality process is in place. Because in every way, whether you make it in Chicago or you make it in China, your brand is on that product, and because your brand is on that product, you have to make sure that you defend it and that it, it whatever you produce... Uh, saying that it was made in China or saying that it was made in India does not defend you against the quality problem. In fact, it may make it work worse in the public's mind. And the third thing you have to do is bring it to the right location. And so, you know, absolute lowest direct cost is not always the best thing to do. 
So as we talked a, a second ago about supply chain issues, if you are uh, thinking about bringing something to China, you also probably, if you're in the U.S., want to consider Mexico, or if you're in Western Europe, you want to consider Eastern Europe, because you may have a much better balance there, uh, even though the cost may, the direct cost may be higher, uh, avoiding any supply chain problems, dealing with large variability, uh, and inventories are important. And you can potentially avoid the hidden costs of other things. And in the U.S., with increasing port constraints, we may be seeing delays over time. And Mexico, which, of course, does not require importing through ports, may be a, a good thing to do. So getting it right, you can see a lot of savings. Getting it wrong, and you may actually see your costs going up. So then would you, would you say how that the level of expertise that, that you're seeing amongst the companies that are sourcing is, is pretty good, but do they have a way to go? Well, you know, some companies do it well, and they've got a lot of experience. Uh, and their expertise is extremely good, uh, and they avoid a lot of the problems, and they're making the right decisions. Other companies, normally ones that are starting, uh, you know, are going in sometimes way too fast without the right level of ex expertise, and they're making a lot of mistakes. And it's fine to go in and recognize that you're going to make a set of mistakes, but you want to do those on small things rather than big things. And so we've seen companies spending millions of dollars building plants and then recognizing they've made mistakes. The biggest mistake that they make often is they duplicate a plant that they have either in Europe or the U.S. And, of course, because uh, <coughs> low-cost countries, the, the value is the wages, you don't necessarily want to put in a lot of automation. If you put in a lot of automation, of course, you've, taken, you've not taken advantage of the fact that the wages are lower. Can you think of any specific examples, Hal, of what things companies should be doing differently if they haven't quite yet you know, done everything perfectly, so to speak? Um, can you think of any examples of, um, that you could point out for our listeners? Sure. I mean, there's a set of things you need to think about, and I guess three things come to mind. One is to rethink what you do. Uh, you know, again, if you move to an environment with a much lower labor cost, you need to think about things differently. Uh, fundamentally, there's what we call the capital labor trade-off. You know, if you're in an environment of 20, $25 an hour wages uh, fully loaded, as in many, many companies are in the U.S., or if you're in Europe at a, at a $50 uh, fully loaded wage rate. You think about the trade-off between capital and labor very differently than if you're in an environment of China where you may be paying a dollar to two dollars an hour uh, for the wages. At that point in time, you, you say, I want to produce things. I don't want to spend as much money on the capital because the penalty of the labor is much lower when it's at that low wage rate. And so I want to think about how I set up my factory, but I also may want to think about the design of my product. I may be designing, as particularly if it's a, some uh, complicated part, something that can be very automated on the machines because I want to avoid the labor. Uh, so I avoid having screws and other, other small parts. If I'm going to have people who are paying, getting wages of about 4% of what I would pay in the West, uh, I may take a trade-off that looks very different and design it with a much more manually production process with things like screws rather than more fancy weldings because it's fundamentally cheaper. You know, we saw a bunch of automotive plants uh, fall into this trap uh, when we looked last time. U.S. and European companies copied their, their plants and sent them to China. And in doing so, they ended up with actually a higher cost position because they put in lots of automation and they were subscale. So, uh, you know, the most important thing I think companies need to do is, is they think about low-cost sourcing is to rethink what they do. The second thing that they need to do is rethink the whole opportunity. And that doesn't just mean sourcing. But if you're going to operate in China, if you're going to operate in India, who have a combined population of about 2.5 billion people, and you're producing, you may want to think about using that as a platform to start selling in those markets or expanding sales in those markets. 
or using your production facilities, not just for that single part or that single product or that single division of your company that's going there, but use it as a lever to do even more sourcing there for the right products. And the third one, and I think one that's most controversial and people worry about tremendously, is you've got to find ways to protect your IP, your intellectual property. You need to be explicit on the trade-off between the cost savings and the risk of losing your intellectual property and make some real decisions. And we've seen companies lose intellectual product because they have sent things to countries with lower protections. We've also seen companies make some very smart decisions where, uh, you know, I think about a particular French company that makes a uh, trimetal alloy where the process of which is the important part of the intellectual property, not uh, the product itself, uh, just the outcome. And so what they've done is they made a decision not to bring that technology uh, to a low-cost country, but to do it in France, which is higher cost. They for, uh, uh, forsook a little bit of the savings, put all the complex assembly in China, shipped the, uh, the trimetal from France, and uh, at that point in time uh, have protected their intellectual property. Uh, how, if you can, take a minute or two to talk about a new book that I think you'll be happy to talk about called Globality. Can you talk a little bit about the authors of the book and what it entails? Sure. Well, Globality is a book that we, we believe takes a very different perspective on how all the competition between companies will, will go forward in the future. It, its subtitle, I think, says a lot about what it is, which is just competing with everyone for, from everywhere for everything. And by that we mean you're... you're competition will change. Your competition will change and you will be competing with everyone. You will not see sort of your, just your traditional competitors, but you'll see new companies springing up from countries like China and India, Brazil and Russia, Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, and just about everywhere to be able to do that, which gets to the second point, which is from everywhere. Uh, no longer can you basically say that your competition is going to look a lot like you. It may be a small company in Indonesia. It may be a large company in China. It may be a big-sized company in India, but it will be coming from everywhere. And the competition will be for everything. And by everything, we mean for resources, for people, for customers, for distribution systems, for supply chains. And so we're expecting a, a, a wealth of competition to spring up because a group of companies from the low-cost countries are moving from being outsourcing vehicles for the, the multinational, the traditional Western multinationals, to becoming companies on their own right that are growing and growing rapidly. So you see companies like Tata Steel and Mahindra and Mahindra starting to take roles on the global stage with their own brands and their own products. Uh, they should not be ignored. And so our book looks at not the Western companies, the traditional multinationals, but it looks at what the new emerging companies that are starting to become large, that are challenging those multinationals are doing and what the lessons are both for other emerging companies, but more importantly for the multinationals. And, uh, and I presume the book has been written by folks at BCG. Yes, yeah, it's myself, a colleague from China, and a colleague from India. Uh, Hal, before we wrap up the interview today, is there anything that you'd like to add that we have not talked about, any important points that you think our listeners should take away from our conversation that we haven't gotten to yet? Yeah, I, I think the most important point that the listeners should understand is that it is very important to seriously consider your procurement on a global basis. Uh, you know, I think some companies have jumped in and jumped in too quickly and too fast and have not thought it through, while others are sitting back and saying, you know, this is a lot of work, I don't really want to do it. And I think for that last group, I would, would caution them to say, 
you know, if you can get a 20% cost savings in a business that might have a 10 or 15% margin, that creates a massive competitive advantage. You can forego that competitive advantage, but if you do, one of your competitors will eventually figure it out and do the same, at which point time you're at a competitive disadvantage. So there's a value to going early, and there's a value to making sure that you go slowly enough to get right, but quickly enough so your competitors don't get ahead. We've been speaking today with Hal Serkin of the Boston Consulting Group. Hal, thanks for joining us and sharing your views. Thank you. Thank you for listening to part one of our series on procurement. In the next segment, BCG partner and managing director Andreas Gauka will discuss the most critical challenges on the horizon for procurement organizations. For more information about the Boston Consulting Group, visit bcg.com. For business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.